welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. This is episode 45. I am Zach Falconer-Parfield and alongside me is the debonair, the sophisticated, the utterly charming Mr James Marwood. <laughs> Thank you very much, Zach. <laughs> I must admit I'm not looking especially debonair at the moment because I've rushed in from the gym and straight on to recording, so I'm still in my gym gear. We'll forgive you. Thank you. You're at the gym, it's acceptable. Thank you, yes. <laughs> Lots of boxing and picking up and putting down heavy bits of metal today. So. Ah, very good. So today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the Men's Fashion Weeks because it's Men's Fashion Week period of time and again. Uh, we've just had London and Milan or for Pitiuma and then uh, Paris, the three main fashion weeks have just happened. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening mm-hmm. in the men's fashion week arena. And then we're going to switch gears a little bit, talk about some business tips for 2017. What's our new business tips for 2017? And then um, you have a rant, James, about a TV show. I do, yes. I've been keeping this one to myself a little bit, but I think it's time to let fly. You know my feelings about a certain portrayal of a certain male British spy. You can rant about this one. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> So um, Men's Fashion Weeks happen twice a year in London, Milan and Paris. This is now for the autumn, winter 2017. Weirdly, they do it now. Did you have a look at the stuff and anything catch your eye, James? What's your general thoughts about it? I'll start with something that I'm very pleased about. It seems that high-rise trousers are continuing their slow but steady comeback. So looking at a few of the shows, especially the Prada show, for example, the men's trousers are cut much more traditionally and with a much more flattering shape. So the, the rise, that is the distance between the crotch and the waist, is an inch or two higher because we've been being sold these horrible, short, low-rise trousers that look terrible on anyone who isn't fantastically slim. So I'm very pleased to see higher-rise trousers making a comeback. I'm with you on that one. High-rise trousers making a comeback. And variations, flat-fronted and pleats. Yes, indeed. Pleats have been derided as old men's trousers for a long time. And I think if you look at the traditional design, they look great. Pleats done properly are very elegant and very smart. When they're not done well, when they're cut badly, and when you wear them with trousers that don't really fit, you've got your front pockets filled with wallet and keys and phone and whatever, they look terrible. Most of my suit trousers, in fact, I think all of my suit trousers now have pleats in them. I much prefer it. I'm quite a, well, let's just say I winter well. So for someone in my build, it works really well. But even on someone slimmer, like some of the models that pity in London and Paris, they look great with pleats. They're such an elegant shape. I'm glad the pleats have come back. It's good to have them back. But apart from that, and a couple of the classic brands who were not going to catwalk anything but classic cuts. I was kind of disappointed of the fashion week so far. It's gone really almost to the women's level of just avant-garde stuff. There were a few things I saw that I liked. You know, I saw some nice overcoats with soft shoulders and detailing sort of little cuffs and things at the end of the sleeves that were quite nice. I mean, maybe not necessarily to my taste, but soft-shouldered overcoats are difficult to do well because they can end up looking very sloppy. And I saw some nice accessory things around bags and uses of leather and some nice colours, coppers and greens and that sort of thing, which I really liked. But yeah, I saw an awful lot of ugly 80s-style jumpers and odd furry waistcoats and things. I looked at the street style photos of the people of going to the shows. They were actually 
for me, sort of a better exponent of current men's fashion than the catwalks. I found the catwalks too modern, too avant-garde. They're going down that ladies' route of sort of putting stuff on the catwalk, which is not really for men to wear or ladies to wear. It's more to sort of show the ability of what you can do. It's that haute couture stuff, whereas men's fashion weeks have tended to predominantly wear stuff that guys would wear. I mean, I looked at some of the guys, especially the Piti Umo and, um, you know, some of those guys, so stylish and so what you and I would quite happily step out in the street and wear. There's a lot of tongue-in-cheekness about the pity peacocks, as they're called. But what I saw was some really nice things, like gun coat checks, really nicely done palettes, creams and browns, browns and blues, greys. And one thing I'm not sad to see the back of that seems to be going away are those guys with five or six bangles on their wrist and little little bits of string and, and what have you. <laughs> Not my sort of thing at all. I do have a black rubber band, like one of the charity bands, which I wear as part of my cognitive behavioural therapy, where I give it a little snap when my brain starts going the wrong way. But in general, I don't like that kind of thing. I think it looks like you're trying too hard. That's what struck out to me this time, was a lot of the street style seemed a lot more relaxed and a little bit less like... People were trying too hard to show off. It wasn't as the bold colours of last year. It was a bit more subdued, a little bit more casual. I mean, the occasional crazy outfits, but... You're always going to get that. I mean, one of the, the sites that I really enjoyed looking at for this was GQ. There was a guy in an amazing sort of light lilac cashmere overcoat with huge lapels right out to the ends of his shoulders, worn overall black. It's probably not something I would wear, but I'm glad somebody does. It looked great. But one of the things I did like, which is something I saw quite a bit of, is the idea of wearing quite formal tailoring. So pinstripe suits, very staid suits, very traditional, with quite plain ties, but then pairing that with unusual coats. And some of those which are not that sort of avant-garde, but there's one picture on the GQ blog of a guy wearing I don't think it's a barber coat looking at it it looks like it's I think Private White the Manchester brand but wearing a shooting coat a country coat like a traditional barber wax jacket over a suit looks fantastic but the colours just work really really well and it's a really nice bit of mixing sort of rural casual and, and city formal that kind of Russin Urbit idea it did also amuse me to see a few sort of sheepskin coats Coming back, a little bit of an Arthur Daly look. And one of the other things I noticed, uh, both on the blogs I've looked at and also the lovely Grey Fox blog, who I love, lovely chap, and was in Pitiomo himself, and it was really always nice to look at his stuff. But I noticed, again, hats. Lots of hats. Bring back some hats. Absolutely. It's Kennedy be damned. Wear a hat. Everything from sort of formal fedoras to flat caps. Bring some hats back. I like it. Especially when they're paired to the outfit and they work well, and it gives a chance to add a little bit variation in colour and, and things like that, I think they're great. One last bit, going back to the catwalk thing, of something that I was a little bit disappointed by was Versace in their show. And Versace's not sort of my style normally, but they keep trying to do this making of trainers and, and suits. Stop trying to make it a thing. It looks terrible. The only people who can get away with it are rappers on red carpets. That's it. I'll accept rocker as well on that one. But yes, if you, yes, you can get away with it. But uh, otherwise, yes, I agree with you. Stop now. Please stop. 
just no, have a word with yourself. <laughs> but the interesting thing, which I one just final thing on the closing before you sort of move off down the different track. The interesting article in Drapers Online, the trade press for the uh, fashion industry. Menswear's growth is set to outstrip women's wear growth till 2020. They're saying menswear market will grow over 2% for the next three years. Women's wear growth will be down about half a percentage point under menswear growth for the next three years. Hopefully men will stop wearing ripped jeans and find tailoring. Uh, I'm sorry, just small rant. <laughs> well, you know, we've got to get them in where we can. Exactly. What else is on the agenda today? Well, should we have a chat about business and about some of the things you maybe want to think about going into the new year? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few things, partially on our sort of productivity tips, but also partially on our sort of ideas for 2017 and maybe some trends and thoughts that we're talking about. I know this is going to sound dichotomous and paradoxical, but it's the world of fast and slow. So in my mind, I think we are getting somewhat faster. Technology and all that sort of stuff is making us somewhat faster. But what I think is starting to happen is that we're starting to see the advent of slow. You and I have talked about this before. My mantra since last year has been slow and steady wins the race. We need to stop trying to fit into the technological advent of being quick, quick, fast, fast, everything needs to be ever applied in 10 seconds and away we go, and start to take control of ourselves a little bit more, take control of the way we interact with technology a bit more, and start to slow down. And we're starting to see a little bit of that. I tend to see that a lot on the blogs and the and the posts about people taking control of their lives and control back of their technology and their own interaction with the technology, specifically about things like emails. I don't respond to emails unless I absolutely have to immediately. I will respond to it when I choose to respond to it. And I think that needs to come back into business. I think we need to sort of take time and engage with stuff. Being under pressure and just on that go, 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 go hamster wheel of craziness will mean that we think we're not succeeding. That whole thing about don't be busy, be productive. Yes, that's very important for business. But I think for your wider life as well, it's really easy to get so caught up in the screen and the social media. And don't get me wrong, I love social media. I love being able to share and stay connected to friends all over the world. But don't let that get in the way of being present and enjoying what you do. I went for a walk on the beach, as I like to do every now and then, to clear my head. The other morning, it was very early in the morning, and it was a beautiful sunrise. I caught myself spending more time trying to get the right photograph of it to share on Flickr and Facebook than actually enjoying it. So I put my phone back in my pocket and just enjoyed it and was present in the moment. And that's far more rewarding in the long term. And when you transfer that to the sort of relationships you have at work and in business, and business is really all about people. At its core, business is about interpersonal relationships and trust. And being able to give yourself fully to the interaction with the person and the moment with the person really builds that trust and shows that you care. Some of the best and most inspiring leaders I've worked with and some of the best managers I've worked with and guys who really make things happen are those who give their full attention to whatever it is they're doing. And I think that's one of the things I'll be focusing on this coming year is stop trying to do everything and kind of make a mess of a few things or give them partial attention, but try and give my full attention to one task at one time. I think that's very true. I think it is much more about stop multitasking and start 
monotasking, to use the MBA business speak. There's something that is talked about quite a lot about continuous partial attention, where you've got half an eye or a few brain cycles going on the phone, a few on your IM window, on your email, on Facebook, on Twitter, and that all takes away from your, from your attention. I mean, we've talked about this before at length. Getting away from that really adds value. There's a blog, I think I've talked about it before on the podcast, Rans and Repose. It's a great blog and it's timely because they've kicked up a gear, started a podcast, increased the output in the articles. But there's a theme throughout that, which is it's about managing humans, about managing people. And one of the pieces of advice that comes through quite strongly, both from the blog itself and from the Twitter comments and, and Slack feeds that go alongside it, is that when you are engaging with people, your real value comes from those meaningful connections and those meaningful periods of time that you spend either in, in focused group meetings or in focused one-to-ones. And those, especially as a leader, are a big part of what it is you have to deliver. I'll not regurgitate all the stuff there, but if you're interested in this topic, and I think anybody who has any sort of professional life probably should be, then have a look at the late December, early January posts from Rans and Repose. I think there's some absolute gems in there that speak to the same topic. We need to slow down. I think we can't keep up the pace to match technology. And I think our capacity to connect with people is not in ones and zeros. We need to take that on board and have that conversation Stop worrying about whether you Instagram your food or not. It's interesting as well because there's a phrase that's used quite often in martial arts and in boxing, which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If you've ever done any work with lean in manufacturing or, or lean startup or lean for service, you put your attention into ironing out all of the things that stop flow that stop your ability to smoothly move a product through a production line or smoothly develop an idea into execution. And that same idea works, I think, for interpersonal relationships and for leadership and for business. Not in the formulaic step-by-step way that Lean does, but the idea that if you take away the friction and you invest in delivering value and delivering exactly what it is that you need and the person you're interacting with needs from an engagement, that allows you to operate faster. It's a slightly, again, paradoxical idea, but instead of just trying to do everything at once, get really, really good at doing the core basics, at doing the fundamentals, and then you're able to operate with really, really low friction, and that makes you fast. I totally agree with that. You get things right technique-wise first, then it gets quicker and easier. And then it's the chunking driving a car analogy. When you first drive a car, you're going, oh, mirror, uh, gear shift, uh, clutch, uh, brake, oh, my God, mirrors, um, hands on wheel. uh." And then nowadays, once you've driven for a few years, it's getting the car drive. And that's the same thing that I've seen with good leaders, especially good team leaders, those who have a number of direct reports who all work together or have regular contributors, that if you spend that time getting the trust in place, the working systems, the understanding, so it becomes second nature, then you can start to lift the really big things. That's one of the things that's really important to focus on, and that's where I'm going to be looking in 2017. I was listening to a talk from Davos a couple of weeks ago at the World Economic Forum. It was a big group of top leaders of uh, the world, and even Martin Sorrell was saying that we have to look long-term and stop thinking quarter-to-quarter as public companies. 
that's really, really hard if you're in a publicly listed business. I think it's similar to the, we've talked about this before, about the little dopamine hit you get when you go into your email or on Facebook or something like that. I think that's the same thing. It gives the illusion of control. It doesn't add value. The really good businesses are those with long-term plans. Both business and personal. Stop thinking quarter to quarter or even yearly. Start thinking three yearly, five yearly. Start thinking that long-term out. I had a manager early on in my career who was hugely influential to me, a guy called Clifford O'Leary. He'd said exactly that. You know, he has three to five-year plans. It smacks of crazy Russian communist tractor production and things. We have a five-year plan. But actually, it works. You see the same idea come up in GTD, where you have your daily plans, your weekly plans, but then you have these, what they call the 30 and 40,000 foot view, which is... What am I going to do this year? What am I going to do this five years? And then the 50,000 plan, which is what is my purpose as a human on this planet? Those are the things that really add the value. It's the why. Why am I doing this? And then in five years, where do I want to be? Yeah, and also the other thing I think, especially working for yourself, is that thing about if it's not deadlined, don't worry. If I don't have to do something today, if I miss it, stop beating yourself up. The world will turn. The sun will rise tomorrow and you'll get another chance to get onto it. Absolutely. <sighs> right, well, on that note, <laughs> let's change subject completely. And James, the floor is yours. It's a gentlemanly rant time. This is an expression of dissatisfaction again. Sherlock. The uh, British BBC TV show with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Indeed, two brilliant actors who I love. The first series of Sherlock I was really excited by especially the first episode, A Study in Pink. I loved it. You know, I've been a long-term Sherlock Holmes fan. I read the books as a boy. Jeremy Brett was my Sherlock, Mm -hmm. was my Holmes growing up. And he did a very traditional and close-to-the-story approach, which was great. But the updated, modernised version seemed really, really promising. And this recent series, the last three episodes, have just been so disappointing. I think, and I'm sad to say, it comes down to the writing and the focus of Moffat and Gatkiss. You know, they're hugely successful guys. Their shows are watched by millions every week. They're not going to care what I think. But for me, they've done to Sherlock the same thing they did to Doctor Who, which is write themselves into a corner and rely on gimmicky soap operas rather than proper stories. That's a real shame. I love the episodic, almost villain of the week approach that you got in the original stories. You had these overarching themes throughout the story, but Holmes solved crimes and dealt with difficult problems. But he wasn't a superhero. He wasn't quite so smug. And he was a little bit more hands-on. And those are all the things that seem to have gone from this current series. I was just really disappointed in it. And it wasn't that I hated it. It was just, uh, this should be better. This should be something that is awesome and that is really engaging and that is a great story. Not quite. Yeah, not quite. It's Nothing seems to happen. And then there's no meat to it that you can get into. It's just, oh, look, here's a wacky thing. Here's a wacky thing. You know, here's Sherlock getting all excited about ginger biscuits. <laughs> the whole thing they did last season and a little bit this, you know, with Dr. Watson's wife being an international assassin. If you're going to update Holmes in the Sherlock stories, which I think is good, then that absolutely means building in strong female characters and strong characters of different types. I'd love to see that, but suddenly have things come out left field like that, it just smacks of desperation on the part of the writers of, oh, what flashy thing can I give to you now that'll hold your attention for half an hour? Contrast that to Elementary. 
although it is less obviously following the canon, actually, to my mind, stays much truer to the spirit of the stories and what is so engaging and rewarding and enjoyable about the original TV show. I really enjoy Elementary. Lucy Liu is a fantastic actress, and she's so good in that. And Johnny Lee Miller makes an excellent, broken, slightly anti-hero Holmes, which is a great modernisation. I think it's a real shame that the BBC has done the worst job of updating and making a fascinating and fun Holmes. The way I can probably sum it up, Conan Doyle put forward this idea that the little things are infinitely the most important and that it wasn't about slapdash tricks. It was about attention to detail and careful construction. And that's what's lacking, I think, in the BBC series. It's zany and action-y without actually having any substance to it. I'm not against the action. You know, in the novels, Holmes and Watson especially were men of action, and that was good to see. Seeing a bit more of a feisty Holmes and Watson is a good thing. Like you, I watched the first season and thought, oh, this is quite good. I thought, oh, this is not bad. This is quite a nice modern update. I liked it. It was quite good. It got to the second season, I started to go, hmm. And then the last season before this one, I was utterly disappointed. I kind of watched it and went, oh, okay. Um, really? And then I haven't actually watched this series. I've recorded them. And, you know, when you got to go, oh, I want to watch something, Sherlock has not been top of my list. As you said quite eloquently and quite clearly, I think what for me is the interesting thing, and I agree with you, I like Elementary, I like Johnny Lee Miller's portrayal. The whole point about Holmes is he is flawed for all his genius. He is flawed. I, like you, grew up with Jeremy Brett. I remember the Basil Rathbone ones as well. But what I liked about Jeremy Brett's version was he was as flawed as you could make him then and what's happened as elementary is they've kind of taken that flaw to another level and and I like that about him because he was a flawed character I find Cumberbatch is just annoying rather than flawed and it's a shame because he can given good writing he can do fantastic acting if we contrast this and I know it's something that you're not a fan of but one of the things that I really enjoyed with for example Skyfall the Bond film was that it took Bond away from that Roger Moore superhero type to an older, maturer, more thoughtful, more introspective, more damaged and therefore more believable and therefore more heroic character. If you look at that, if you compare it to, for example, Taboo, which is the latest blockbuster BBC, and I think PBS in the US are covering it, that's a fantastically fascinating story about a very, very flawed and dark anti-hero. And it's so good because he's not a comedy superhero who every now and then is a bit wacky to show that he's a bit off kilter. There's real nuance to it and real depth, which is what's missing for me in Sherlock. Hmm, absolutely. Well... Uh, there we go. There off we go. your chest, off your chest. Off my chest, indeed. But to finish on a positive, if you haven't watched it... Go and watch Taboo. It's quite bloody and quite naughty and has some quite adult themes to it, so it's not one to watch with children. For a late-night TV, it's 
brilliant. <laughs> well, uh, we'd love to know your thoughts out there in podcast land. Please drop us an email at enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or find us on social media with a perfect gentleman on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always like to hear your thoughts and comments and concerns and whether you agree with James and his Sherlock rant or uh, me and my James Bond rant or disagree, <laughs> um, please let us know. We look forward to hearing from you. As always, James, a pleasure. And you, my friend, great to speak to you again. See you next week. Take care, buddy. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.